about Star Trek Discovery. That's right, here we are, two brothers who love us some Trek, and we're going to be trekking all over the Star Trek universe over the next few years, so we hope you'll join us for the ride. But I am not just a single brother, because that would be a weird situation, so I'm going to have my brother over there in Houston saying hello, so say hello, Ken. Peace and long life. That's right. Greetings and felicitations, huh? How about that one? A little pullback there from the original series. It's a good one. So uh, we're going to just fill you in real quick, give you a little background about what we're doing here, what kind of stuff you can look forward to, and why you should be listening to our Discovery podcast over all the others that I'm sure you'll also be listening to as well. Let's be honest. We're going to go ahead and start this off the uh, most fun way that I can by saying that I am, in fact, a diehard Star Wars fan. (gasps) What? What do you say? You are a Star Wars fan doing a Star Trek podcast? I can't. I know that's what you're saying. Perhaps not that dramatically, but that's what you're thinking to yourself. But let me tell you this. This is, that's part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast. Not only uh, do we definitely have some Star Wars infusion into the new J.J. Trek, as well, I kind of feel a little bit into Discovery as well, but we'll get into that. Uh, but also, it's fun to just go back and watch the original series, which, um, you know, I hadn't really watched a lot of and yet grew up watching all of it, if that makes any sense. I know that my window into uh, Star Trek was Wrath of Khan, of course, you know, back in the day. Uh, still probably the greatest Star Trek movie, although you might fight for Undiscovered Country, and, and I'd let you take that fight. That's a, it's, a, it's good. It's good. It's a good choice. Uh, so for me, it's, it was always just growing, you know, there around growing up. Can you talk a little bit about it? Because, you know, you were there while I was growing up, too. Well, of course, Star Trek is my favorite show. And so I've always preferred it ideologically and stylistically to other science fiction franchises. I would say uh, my, my other franchises are things like James Bond and, and uh, you know, things that are not even science fiction. So, but Star Trek looms large for me. Well, you're like all in when it comes to Star Trek, too. You know what I mean? Like, I always yeah. joke that uh, what you know about the Star Trek universe, I know about the Star Wars universe. And there's some overlap from both sides of us. You know, I could pull out some good, good deep pulls every once in a while. But, you know, you're into the whole Star Trek online and uh, playing all of that. You know, like the ships of the fleet and uh, that kind of stuff. It's true. So. I think this will be fun for us to go through all of Star Trek together and see the new series as it uh, reveals itself to everyone and then go back after Discovery's episodes and rewatch the original series. That's right. Watch some of the, all those original uh, series treks. I can't, uh, can't wait to get into those. 
it's going to be a lot of fun for us. That is definitely true. Oh, that's probably enough, don't you think? Probably just go ahead and get right on into it here. So uh, I think I've always liked to talk about some of the behind-the-scenes info, such as we have it. Obviously, uh, when it comes to the other series, there's just tons and tons of behind-the-scenes coolness to uh, read about. So this show being pretty new, there's not a whole lot of behind-the-scenes stuff to find out. Uh, there was a great Entertainment Weekly article uh, that I don't know if you haven't read it. Go and check it out, but I'm going to go ahead and hit some of, some of the backstory about Discovery. So this is the uh, this is obviously the first uh, episode of the new show called The Vulcan Hello, followed with Battle at the Binary Stars, which is uh, next. Uh, the interesting thing about this is that the show's creators consider these two episodes almost a prelude to the rest of the show, what it's going to end up being. A kind of a cold open. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, you know, we get this like, yeah, like the first like, you know, 10 minutes of a good Bond film or something. That's right. This is gonna like really kick us into gear, so we can kind of kind of see where all of these characters come from. We'll get into it a little bit more. I was about to launch into some stuff, but we'll talk about it when we get into the show itself. Also, uh, I thought this was an interesting little piece of trivia. I read read that this is the first live action episode of Star Trek since the final episode of the original series, Turnabout Intruder, that had no involvement from Rick Berman. Thought that was kind of an interesting little uh, thing there. Otherwise, he's been involved all the way through all those other Trek series. So, uh, if we remember, uh, Star Trek Discovery was originally slated to come in at uh, January of this year. And then it was supposed to be May of this year. And finally, here we are, September uh, 2023rd. And the show is uh, finally airing. There's a lot of ins and outs to this. Part of it had to do with the fact that uh, due to the breakup of Viacom in 2005... The rights, the film rights and the TV rights kind of got broken up so that Paramount got to keep the movie rights, but then uh, CBS television got to keep uh, television rights to it all. So, of course, they knew that they wanted to, you know, launch big and really put something cool on the air. So that's also then when they decided to go ahead and attach it to the CBS app that it is now. Good strategy, I would say. What do you think about that? I think so. I mean, the future of, of media, I think, is going to be through devices and not through traditional channels. Definitely. Well, and not only that, too, I also think that come the future, we're going to be there's going to be a lot more picking and choosing of the stuff we want to watch. You know, in a couple of years, not to bring up Star Wars again, but uh, in a couple of years, you know, Disney's going to be having their own app, their own uh, channel, basically, where they're going to be showing all of their Marvel stuff, all of their Star Wars stuff. You know, I think that that's good in some ways that we're going to be able to watch the things that we want to watch as many times and wherever and however we want to watch it. I also think it's bad because, and no pun intended here, but the discovery of other shows is also going to be lost. I think that that's going to be harder harder to find because I don't know how many times I'm, you know, flipping through channels and I come across something that I want to watch. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, I forgot the show yeah. is starting tonight or whatever. I think one of the features that we get out of you know, and here Amazon's also, you know, now mm -hmm. into their new streaming service. And Amazon's really good at making recommendations about things that you're probably going to like because of things that you've liked in the past. Yeah. And so we'll get that. What we're going to miss are the serendipitous, unlikely, you know, I wouldn't have picked that show for me, but I really do like it. Kind of. Yeah. Uh, finds. 
The company made a deal with the, uh, for the new show with producer Alec Kurtzman, who's been working on all the J.J. movies, and as well as the uh, showrunner Brian Fuller. He uh, was best known for NBC's Hannibal, but he also worked on DS9 and Voyager, so he had a big you know, Star Trek pedigree already coming into this one. And Pushing Daisies. And Pushing Daisies. Oh, yeah, also a good show. Which our sister very much liked. I did not know that. So he lobbied for the return of Trek to television, specifically with a black woman at the fore. Uh, He thought that that would be really cool. Uh, He was quoted as saying, I couldn't stop thinking about how many black people were inspired by seeing Nichelle Nichols on the bridge of the ship, you know, as Lieutenant Uhura in the original. And I can't stop thinking about how many Asian people were inspired by seeing George Takai as well. So, uh, you know, obviously we get that right off the bat. We get our two main characters. Uh, We get, you know, Michael Burnham, who is played by a a black woman. And as well, we get uh, the awesome Asian representation from Michelle Yeoh, who is also amazing. This is interesting because I had heard about this before, but you and I have never talked about it. The idea that this show was originally going to be an anthology show. So it was going to start off before like it is, the original series, and it was every season was going to kind of work its way forward, forward, until we even went past Next Generation and Voyager and all of that. Well, what do you think of that idea? Well, that's certainly interesting. You know, there's a lot of Star Trek stories out there to tell. Absolutely. I, th- I think, you know, the problem with any anthology series is that we, what happens when you become really attached to some characters? Yes. You know, do you go, well, you know, it's been nice, and... Sometimes an anthology series would have to work that way because your actors would be like, I signed up for one year, I loved it, I've got other projects, right. and I'm not turning them down, you know? Yeah. Well, that's cool. That's kind of what, uh, uh, I, it's a show I've been meaning to watch, I just haven't gotten to it yet, but, you know, Fargo's doing that, where, you know, they do, like, a contained, uh, I mean, American Horror Story, that's obviously another big one, too, but, you know, Fargo's been really cool, like, this year they brought in Ewan McGregor to play, you know, to do one season, and because it was one season, he was able to do it and then not worry about, you know, conflicting with mm-hmm. any other movies, or an Obi-Wan movie that he'd want to do. So, uh, of course, CBS came back to him and says, hey, why don't we just do the single single serialized show and then we'll see how it performs. You know, we'll see where it goes from there. I think there's still elements of the anthology that will be at least the beginning of this series. They, the creators have talked about how the first series or the first season is going to be kind of a self-contained unit. And then going on from there will be another, you know, same characters, same ship, but not necessarily same plot line. So we're going to have year-by-year arcs, Yeah, which is something that's really new to Star Trek. The relationship between Brian Fuller and CBS is becoming more and more dire, the situation. The studio hired a director as opposed to letting, you know, the showrunner do it. Uh, that was a big thing that they had clashed on because uh, Brian Fuller wanted to bring in some bigger names to help, you know, Edgar Wright was on that list, a few other people, you know, big directors to come in, whereas CBS hired people they knew could do TV drama. Uh, there are big squabbles over the budget, too. Apparently, uh, apparently they're doing about $6 million an episode. That's how much it costs them. So I look, and it shows. Oh yeah, it looked. I mean, it looked great. The effects were amazing. Everything, and I also think too that if you're gonna get good quality shows, you know, great costumes, great sets, all of the effects that we saw in this movie, having to pay five bucks a month to be able to see it is worth it for me. If we're gonna get cool, big, epic stories, 
that are awesome and worth the money, then it's totally worth it for me. Yeah. And the other thing is that, you know, we now know we have the hindsight, uh, which of course they didn't have back in the days of Desilu and right. William Shatner, <laughs> that Star Trek has legs. It will continue to, you know, return value for years. It's not like, well, we make a show that it's gone. Right. Which was the expectation in the sixties. And so the, you know, there's there's a willingness to put some more money into it and make a better product. And of course, the better the product you make, the the stronger the legs are. Exactly, absolutely. Another big issue that they ran into behind the scenes was trying to uh, launch by January, as we've talked about. That was obviously the original release date. You know, Brian Fuller was trying to redesign new uniforms, new sets, bring in new aliens. You know, also trying to figure out what the arcs were going to be for at least the first season and every episode. So uh, Discovery's executive producer said this, you can't cut quarters or have 95% of what's on screen be completely original and inspired and have 5% something that you just bought at a store, right? has to be cohesive. And that's the world we made it is. So the other couple other things that were happening, Brian Fuller was also working on another show, American Gods, which I would also like to see because Neil Gaiman is very cool. They just felt like maybe his complete focus wasn't on the show so they parted ways now it's funny because we also have the same thing going on in the star wars universe you know where the studio has a vision for what they think the show is going to be and the creatives on are on the other side going like yeah I, that's a cool story i, I don't want to make that story but that sounds really cool and they're like well if you don't want to make it we can bring somebody else who will and they're like okay question mark you know i feel like with colin trevorrow it really seemed in star wars the last jedi everything seemed like or not the last jedi the uh, episode nine that you know everything was going fine until carrie fisher passed away and then they had to come up with a brand new story and i think it's in coming up with that brand new story that they ran into problems and so then kathleen kennedy was just like okay you know i think ultimately go ahead i'm on record recommending that they would have gone with uh Star Trek alum, Kate Mulgrew. <laughs> right, recasting her as uh, Carrie Fisher? Recasting, yeah. Absolutely. That would have been interesting. You know, and I think that's part of the problem, too. I'm, I also wonder if that was maybe one of the issues that they were having was because they came out, because Lucasfilm came out right away and were like, we're not going to recast, we're not going to do the, the 3D imaging thing, so that leaves you no Princess Leia come you know episode nine so i'm wondering if you know that kind of irked trevor Rao as well of being like well now what are we going to do like we're going to have no princess leia in this story like we can't even kill her off now because there's no way to kill her off at the beginning of the at beginning of the movie without just putting it into the crawl princess leia has died you know that's like going to be the only way you're going to be able to do it so yeah i'm sure that that's a lot of the stuff that was going on behind the scenes there so it's interesting because i think that both of these properties are very are a lot more difficult to create than people give it credit for. You know, that there's definitely a feeling to a Star Wars movie and there's definitely a feeling to Trek. You know, that they kind of have all of these big things always going on. So I think that sometimes, so if the studio is right and the studio has the right vision for what the show should be, then I think it's going to be fine. In this case, now that we've seen the product, I feel like, you know, ha them having to get rid of Brian Fuller was okay. But even all of the producers, even now, still say that the world building that Brian Fuller brought into the show is still everything that we're seeing on, on screen. So. He's still getting a producer credit. Yeah. 
Oh, that's right. Yeah. So I'm just going to give you a little behind the scenes on Sonequa uh, Martin-Green, and then we'll uh, go ahead and jump into a little recap of the show, talking about great big Star Wars themes as we do. She was, of course, best known. Trek. <laughs> did I say Star Wars? God damn it. <laughs> That's what I get for talking Star Wars before we start the show. Um, all right, so Sonequa Martin-Green. And then we'll get into a recap of this awesome Star Trek goodness. She was, of course, probably best known for her uh, role on The Walking Dead, obviously. I thought she was really good on that show, but I felt that there were times her acting felt a little forced. And yet, in this episode tonight on Discovery, I didn't feel any of that. I thought that she was uh, really solid, and I thought that she was uh, really awesome on the show. Her favorite character, of course, is Spock, which makes sense, her uh, background in the Vulcan. And her favorite episode, oddly enough, Journey to Babel from the original uh, series, which, of course, introduced Sarek. You know, she's like, you got family, you got sacrifice. There's so much explored in one episode. So I bet it was also fun for her to be able to see Sarek, you know, in the original series as well. You know, she was basically out of school. She had a, she was doing some uh, independent movies. She played Tamara on Once Upon a Time, actually, which would coincided with her being on Walking Dead, and also had a, a, a small recurring role on The Good Wife as Courtney Wells. And then that was pretty much it. She did, you know, finished her uh, few seasons of Walking Dead, and then next thing you know, she's hired into this thing, launched into a whole new world. So uh, that's it. That's all I got for all the behind-the-scenes stuff. At this point, let's do what we always do and say, let's get to it. Captain's log. Starting. It's five-year mission. So, of course, we open uh, with a shot of the ship in warp. The warp looks a little bit different. It's not like rainbow stars like it used to be in the next generation. Uh, it's brand new. How'd you feel about the look of the new warp? So, I'll talk about... I'll about more than just the warp. So it's inevitable that we're going to have new looks because when, you know, it turns out that, that looks, we, we may think that things look a certain way, but audiences that are not committed to the series will often feel like, you know, that looks like 90 special effects or to explain why we will, why the ship will look nothing like the original mm-hmm. series. That looks like sixties. You know, the, the the design philosophy, the design aesthetics. Yeah. That looks retro cool. This looks like the Jetsons. Right? And it's, so you, you can't go back to the design mm-hmm. philosophy. Now, what you can do is you can make nods to it. You can make homages to it. For example, I think all of the handheld devices look uh-huh. like they do in very early Star Trek. The communicator, the phasers, uh, you know, tricorders, I think are going to look... Exactly. And not only that, but, uh, you know, there's a scene in the flashback where she comes on the bridge for the first time and and it's loud. It's, you know, dialed up into the foreground. We hear all those original sound effects. Yeah. And I think, you know, sound effects and those little devices don't necessarily root you in. Oh, my goodness. This is, you know, 1966. The same way that the the classic bridge does. Yes. And so we as an audience in 2017 can look at those devices and we can hear those sounds with a modern looking, with a contemporary feel to that bridge in terms of its design aesthetic. And we go, 
that looks like the future. That looks like it's yeah. modern. And those pieces fit right in. Whereas those bold colors, you know, and part of what they were doing back in 66 was making a TV show that would look good on 1960s TV. Yes, in color. Right. In, a, in addition to, you know, having the kind of mid-century modern aesthetic, they're playing to the technology that they're working with. And we don't have any of those right. limitations, so there's no reason that our, you know, and so we're just going to have to let go the fact that there's no no technological through line in which we go, oh, Enterprise, Discovery, original series. It looks like an in like a technological arc because we can't do that, right? And, and unless you would include JJ Trek as what original Trek was supposed to look like, and I think there'd be a lot of resistance. We're just going to have mm -hmm. to like like the Klingons. We're just going to have to go. Well, it was different then because of how the show was made. Yep. Absolutely, absolutely. So uh, here we are. Stardate. 1207.3? Question mark. I mean, if I look at the stardate of Where No Man Has Gone Before, original series episode, that stardate is 1312.4. So it's only 100 days before uh, the original series? Question mark? Well, of course, most of our series... Will, won't take place until, you know, like Stargate 3000. Uh -huh. You know, we do have some early episodes where they're in the teens. And then they kind of skip to the 3000s and, and we're off to the races. Right. But in honesty, I was trying to place where we, where we are in the timeline. Did that ever come up? Do we know? Is it supposed to be 50 years? Is it supposed to be 100 years? 10 before? years. 10 years before? Okay. Yeah. So Sarek oh. is 10 years younger than we'll see him in Journey to Babel. Right. Somewhere there's Spock running around who's, you know, like he's 17 or 19 or. Yeah. In fact, all the characters are alive. And most of the characters are are either in in Starfleet or about to be in Starfleet. So I think Captain Kirk would be an ensign on the Republic. Um, Spock would be probably um, already Starfleet. on the Enterprise. Um. We know, yeah. I think he's on. He's actually on the Enterprise at this point yeah. with uh, Christopher Pike. Mm -hmm. um, Scotty, who's older than both of them, is already, in fact, in an engineering department. Although perhaps not as chief engineer, we don't have all those details. Yep. Uh, Bones is in Starfleet. So the younger characters, um, Uhura, I think, is just you know a year or two too young to to be in the academy, and Pavel right. Chekhov is way too young basically an adolescent <laughs> right exactly so we find ourselves on the shinju uh not the discovery question mark and uh we also come in with the uh played uh, our lead with Zaniqua martin green playing uh michael burnham she is not the captain but the first officer which we had heard originally that that was going to be the focus was going to be our first officer it's kind of fun the way they've already played into it we got a lot of questions going into the next uh three four five uh, episodes, but there's going to be, uh, but yeah, we can tell how we're already following this character through. So they're on a mission to discover what happened to a communications relay. Uh, she starts immediately speculating in her, in her captain's log or first officer's log that the beacon was deliberately broken, but by who she questions. 
in great typical Star Trek tradition, we've got the captain's log that is not only setting the time and the place of the universe, but also a the mystery that we are trying to discover. That's all very original series stuff. It's also very Star Trek in that our, we, our beginning is a very routine kind of mission. Mm-hmm. You know, lots of episodes start off with, we're dropping off food, we're dropping off supplies, we're dropping off, we're going to check on this, we're going to go over here and just make contact with this, uh, we're going to give some you know, medical checkups on these guys. It's all very routine. Yeah. And then we get a big episode that's full of excitement because they discover something new and unexpected. Exactly. And that's how this episode works, too. So uh, once the camera makes its way into the bridge, I did point out here, too, that you do hear a ping or two from the original bridge noise of the uh, Mm -hmm. original series. We meet uh, Saru, the science officer. We already see that he's kind of the butt of a few jokes from our number one. Uh, I think in these first few scenes, there's a lot of banter going around in these first few episodes. Or, I mean, first few scenes. Uh, It's fun. Kind of brings back the whole Spock Bones uh, Kirk tradition. Mm -hmm. Uh, So number one walks into the captain's ready room. I guess that's still what it's called, the ready room, uh, where we meet uh, Captain Giorgio. We find that number one agrees with the science officer that perhaps the discovery has been lured out here. But by who? But by what? Why would they do this? Back on the bridge, we see the captain is giving her, se- <laughs> again, more of the banter, giving her uh, senior officer some grief for apparently never getting along. It is at this point then Saru, uh, Saru sees something, but he can't get a he can't get a lock on it. He tries a couple of times, and finally he at least gets a gets a uh, visual on it. Uh, we also hear, by the way, at this point some uh, next generation noises as well. Uh, a couple of the times when he tries to get the get the lock on the thing we hear uh we hear like the you've been denied <laughs> uh button for, yep exactly yeah. so Bernan steps in and takes control of the screen she takes over uh she seems to get a lock on where the object is but can provide no other information and saru says well as science officer i can probably offer you more information than just reading off of a screen <laughs> which i like screw the sensors they think and they run into the captain's ready room where they use a telescope that she just ha- happens to have on the ship. And they look it out. And to me, I'm already saying that looks like a Klingon ship, uh, if I were to uh, guess. Uh, also, too, we see a little bit of... Of course, uh, What's apparently that? the Klingons have been in disarray for a century. Yes. You know, so you have to go back to the Enterprise era, which, of course, we know that Klingons get messed up, you know, during Enterprise by all kinds of normal Klingon shenanigans. Uh, so it's funny because... We don't know this yet within the confines of the of the show, but because of some of the information that came out beforehand, we did we do know that uh, Burnham is a half or not even half Vulcan. She's human, but who grew up as a Vulcan. Uh, so it's funny because there were a couple of times in this scene already where she uses she uses very Vulcan like phrases, like with this little data. I prefer not to speculate. She also says something. Uh, it, she doesn't use the word illogical, but she also says something like that as well. So I thought that was good. So Saru thinks that the ship is lurking out there. Uh, he says it's got the scatter field that must be watching. <laughs> we got an old Trek staple here, an old uh, Trek trope, actually, you might even call it, because Burnham says, oh, we see something we don't understand, and we instantly cast judgment on it? Yep. Love that. Sounds like an old Trek trope to me. Or maybe she's just yelling at the entire internet. I don't know. Will you wait until the thing comes out before you hate it? <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> Saru su suggests that we leave it alone. And the captain agrees that they have, uh, by saying we have little choice in the matter, you know, we can't see it, we can't like, oh, oh, what are, oh, we can't do anything else on it. But Burnham here decides she's going to step up but offers to fly a thruster pack in and take a look. And now we get a ticking clock. 19 minutes or her DNA turns into noodles. What are we going to do? <laughs> she says to uh, Saru, you know, if we are afraid of everything, we learn nothing. I like that one. I'm putting that on a poster somewhere. The captain then says to Saru, well, hey, why don't you go with her? But uh, Michael says, no, 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 no. We can't put another colleague in risk. And Mr. Saru says, she's, uh, the captain says, Mr. Saru, are you equally happy to not be taking that risk? And he says, on any occasion, Captain. <laughs> I like that Saru character. He's fun. So uh, the captain sends her off. So we get this joke then as she's like being lifted out of the uh, thing where they, it, it's like a joke. It's like a plane joke, you know, we are now flying at this altitude and blah, 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 blah. Mm -hmm. Which not only to me seemed really anachronistic, but yeah, I didn't like it. I don't know what else to say about it. I just didn't like it. I thought it was stupid. You know, the thing it really reminded me of was in the motion picture when Spock goes out to take a closer look at Viger. Okay, I can see that. Both of them going out for their spacewalks. Um, 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 and, and off she goes. You know, at first she's a little bit scared. She's breathing a little bit hard. But then next thing you know, she's enjoying it. She's having a good time out there. That says something about this character. And all of this to say that these effects are amazing you know what i mean everything is looking legit at this moment mm -hmm. everything you know the the asteroids are all looking cool the debris whatever it is it's all looking awesome yeah. i saw some uh extras in which they were talking about how they did the the harness work and the you know hanging from from wires and they were very conscious of the fact that in space you're always gliding mm -hmm. you're all you know it's it's all momentum right and so only the thruster pack makes you change your movement. Mm -hmm. And so they don't want to look they didn't want her to look like she was dangling or that she was being moved by wires or they, and I think it, they certainly pulled it off to my first watching that it, it felt like the harness was doing the it, it looked like a spacewalk. So they lose her on radio and in the sensors, but she gets there and is able to get a, a closer look at the ship, whatever it is. The suit begins recording it all. So she decides she's going to move closer. Is this a good plan? Wasn't it just enough to get a picture of it and to go back? No, she's got to go cl closer. So uh, she moves in. She starts, like, circling it. You know, at this point, I even started to doubt whether or not it was a ship. You know what I mean? Because it was so carved and ornate. You know, it was really hard to, you know, it was really, it was really difficult at that point to even figure out what it was. Obviously, later it turns out to be a beacon of some kind. But even still, it's uh, super cool. Uh, so she lands on it. But then that suddenly makes the thing move. And then someone behind her shows up in a spacesuit. Iconography confirmed. It's a Klingon. He's got a bathlet. So uh, she attempts to introduce himself. But without even uh, waiting for her to finish, the Klingon swings at her. She throws the jets on her, uh, her jetpack and takes him out. Back on the ship. They still don't read her on sensors. But then they do, and they're attempting a transporter lock, but they can't get her. Seconds are creeping away. They don't know if she's going to get her on board. Commercial. So we've set up uh, some fun in this opening scene. We've got the mystery, right? We've got, a Kling we've got Klingons. We know that. That's cool. Uh, we've got a good crew that's uh, having a good time. So it's really cool. We've already set up in the first part of this, you know, commercial part here. 
So uh, it was also in this commercial break when I realized that uh, I, well, I suspected that we were going to be seeing a flashback here into, into Burnham's past as a Vulcan. And then we come back, and instead, we see Klingons. I was like, oh, okay, fine. So let's talk about the design of these Klingons. I like the way they look. It's cool. But what's more interesting to me is the, like, ornateness of this version of the Klingons. How, like, you know, before, whenever we used to see Klingons in Next Generation, it was always, like, black soundstage, one big silver, like, thing hanging in the middle, you know. Uh, whereas this is super ornate. You got things... You got this beacon or whatever that is carved. You've got this giant ship that is, you know, super ornate as well. I thought that that was really cool. Uh, how about you? So I think it'll take some getting used to. Uh-huh. You know, it's new. It's different. We also had been kind of led to believe they didn't explicitly say so. But the way they did the augments in Enterprise led you to believe that the reason... Uh, original series Klingons looked the way they do is that they had been uh, they had augment DNA in them hmm. and that uh, there's a um, there's a Star Trek online time travel episode in which uh, Tom Parrish's daughter with uh, um, with the engineer on on uh, Voyager, whose name I can't remember. Bavana? You know, she, she was a, a human Vulcan. And yeah. So she's now grown up by the timeline of the, the game. And she gets captured and brought back to undo the, the augments and restore Klingons to true Klingonness. So hmm. we are apparently dispensing with that whole problem and just going with these are Klingons, and the fact that they don't look like this 10 years from now is a TV artifact. Yes. Rather than explained by, which I thought was very clever, the Enterprise explanation about the human augments. But yeah. Obviously, they've gone a different direction here, which is fine. You know, I have a, I have a philosophy with Star Trek or James Bond or Star Wars or whatever the franchise is that I prefer more to less. Mm -hmm. And so if people are going to go in a new direction and do something interesting, I'm going to give it a look. I'm going to be open to it. I don't expect it to fit in the box that previous iterations have done. And that, you know, I, I find that I'm much happier with my science fiction franchises that way. Obviously where everything doesn't have to follow uh, a canon or whatever. Right. And you know, you think about like how would you make James Bond even work that way? You couldn't. I mean, it's absurd. It's much better that basically he has to be a time lord. Yeah, <laughs> he regenerates, yeah. And, and nobody's concerned by it. <laughs> <laughs> because he's obviously he's been doing this since the '60s, and he's not aging. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think you just have to go with it and go, you know, I'd rather watch Star Trek than not watch Star Trek. And if it's going to be a little bit different because the creators had some ideas that they wanted to explore and they were going to do something and this was their idea of the, the Klingons, that they're going to be Baroque and ornate and there's, we're just going to forget about augments or what Klingons look like in the original series. 
And I say, you know, I'm, I'm willing to put that aside in order to watch yep. good Star Trek. Yeah, you know, I feel that way too. It's uh, there's a lot of like stuff coming out right now about what the about you know what the DCU is going to do, mm-hmm. right? Because apparently Martin Scorsese is going to do a Joker film? Mm-hmm. Question mark. Like that's really weird to me. I think, like, but so and he wants to set it in like the 70s or mm-hmm. something. So clearly that can't fit into the DC universe. How do I feel about that? Well. You know, A, I'm not super attached to the DC Universe as it is now anyway, so there's that. But also, it's it's fine. Like, yeah. if I'm going to get a great story out of this that's, a, you know, going to be a cool, like, weird Joker origin story, then, hey, I'm all for it. Plus, Martin Sc- Scorsese doing, like, a superhero film. Like, yeah, and I'm on board for that all along. He, he's got lots of really good – I mean, he understands the 70s. The greediness, yes. the dirtiness. In a lot of ways, the way they portrayed Gotham has been – as if it was New York in the 70s. Yeah, that's true. And so taking Joker back to the 70s and just immersing him in this kind of, you know, dirty New York, which is, you know, that's Scorsese's, uh, you know, his, his milieu. So yeah. I, I think in a lot of ways, uh, you know, go for it. I'll watch it. Yeah, I, I mean, again, and I also think that it's that's something that they do in the comics anyway. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? You got your regular run of you know Superman that's been going you know since episode you know since issue seven hundred or whenever they rebooted, you know, and then you have this like random you know the one of my favorites is uh, Superman Red Sun. You know what would have happened if Superman would have landed in you know Russia and what would that have meant for the world? Blah blah. blah. So I so yeah, I mean, I'm totally fine with it. It doesn't all have to be part of the same right universe and even this i think i mean again just going back to what the ship looks like like you were saying earlier you know this doesn't have to be part of the same overarching universe as we've known it this could be another third branch that's sort of a mix because there's some other stuff too that happened between that sort of like that reminds me of jj trek but then there's also other stuff that connect you back to original trek so i'm like yeah in the the space battle now i'm jumping ahead to the second episode I thought really looked like um, Enterprise, the way those ships uh-huh. were designed. It felt like we were at a period just before, you know, the Constitution class becomes the serious flagship of the of the fleet. Yeah, and in you know, of course, they redesigned in JJ Trek the, the Constitution class to look more like the TV ship rather than, let's say, what I have back here, the movie era ship. Because, again, if we were looking for, you know, what should Star Trek look like for the original cast in a way that looks like it's modern and doesn't look like, whoa, it's, you know, the Jetsons, I would go with (laughs) the motion picture. You don't look at that bridge and go, whoa, it's, you go, it's, yeah, it looks modern. Great. We have the introduction of this uh, torchbearer. It's this person, this Klingon who has died. He's being put in this, like, again, super ornate Klingon casket of some sort, which they then lift out and put on the side of the ship. I was trying to figure out, too, that was kind of, like, confusing to me at first. I know they go on to explain it later, but at first I was like, I even wrote down, like, is this, are they putting this on some sort of weapon? Because they say how, like, the dead are going to be a part of what happens next, you know? So I thought that maybe, like, they were attaching him to a big weapon that they were going to send in or something, but it just turns out that they're using him as armor, which is cool as well and sounds very Klingon-like. I'm also really interested in these Klingons. Uh, I was always kind of bored by the Klingon episodes in The Next Generation, so Mm -hmm. 
little more interested in what's happening, what's going on with these Klingons. We also get that Klingon death scream yeah. that we uh, saw in The Next Generation. Warning the dead that a warrior who is worthy is coming to the other side. So uh, we cut back to Burnham now, who is in sick bay, finally getting treatment. And boom, we get that flashback that I knew we were going to get. I was so excited. So, yeah, we get, uh, you know, she's a child. And we see right. her relationship with Sarek. And in some ways, this is a, a nod to the very beginning of, or you know, I guess it would be like the second or third scene of J.J. Trek, in which we exactly. get a, a very young uh, Spock. But I, I, um, we haven't, I don't think we've watched it yet together. But there's also, it's like the third or fourth episode of uh, Star Trek The Animated Series, which goes uh -huh. back and deals with uh, Spock as a boy. And yes, I've seen that one with the pet. Or yeah. Something. There's a pet involved, yeah. Uh-huh. You know, so we've got these images of Sarek and Spock and, you know, their difficulties and what it's like being a young student in a Vulcan society. And yep. So we get some of that. We, you know, build, begin to build a relationship a little bit. And, you know, speaking of flashbacks, we also had one at the very beginning in which uh, we, we get to do the same thing, basically, with the captain and and Burnham. Establish kind of their relationship and their rapport. And so these flashbacks are, are not something we're used to necessarily in track, but I think they work really well. Uh-huh. Well, thanks for pointing out that I totally forgot to watch that first scene. <laughs> I also wondered, too, when I was watching the second episode, I was like, how did I miss the title credits for the first episode? Like, what was I doing? And I don't know. I guess I just hit a button and fast-forwarded past it or whatever. But, well, folks, if you're wondering why we missed that first part, that's why, because I am dumb. So, good answer. <laughs> All right. So, within this flashback, we also see the little quiz pods that are uh, on Vulcan. That is super reminiscent of J.J. Trek, if you remember, that like Spock was in one that looked almost exactly like that. Uh, so uh, Burnham starts getting questions about this most recent Klingon attack. I was like, is she being punished for not being up on current events? What's going on here? Oh, I see. We're to assume that her family was lost on this Klingon raid, and uh, Sarek is giving her a big test here. Uh, in fact, I like his line uh, that says, when emotion brings us ghosts of the past... Only logic can rid us of the present. So uh, little Michael offers to learn Vulcan, but Sarek says, no, you don't need to know Vulcan. Uh, it's not your Vulcan tongue that is the problem. It is your human, it is your human emotion. Your, yeah, your human heart. Yes, your human heart. Yes, yes, yes. I wrote tongue again, so I was like, wait, what was the quote? Damn it. <laughs> so Burnham wakes up in sickbay, and uh, she realizes three hours have passed. She uh, breaks out of her little quarantine thing and runs to the bridge despite her doctor's protests. On the bridge, she reveals that the object is, in fact, some sort of Klingon beacon or ship or something. She's like, we, I saw a Klingon. I fought him. I'm not crazy, she assures the captain, who finally believes her and goes to red alert. It's also at this point I want to bring up that there's some sort of robot on the ship. Did you notice that? Like they cut to a couple of scenes of this robot specifically here. When they go to red alert, the robot gets like a red alert on his like little like face. No, I have to rewatch for the robot. Oh really? You never saw the robot? No. Yeah, it's there, which I thought was weird. I was like, I thought like data was like the first 
robot to serve on. Maybe they just because they call him a cyborg or something. I don't know. But yeah, no, there's totally a robot. You see him two or three different times. Like once you go back and rewatch it, you'll be like, oh yeah, how did I miss that stupid robot? That's crazy. <laughs> so I don't know what that robot is, but it'll be interesting to find out. I guess that will be revealed possibly in other episodes. Of course, Saru is opting to like run away. Let's get the hell out of here. But uh, the captain says, no, this is Federation space. Retreat is not an option. Michael tells them to uh, target the object. But don't fire. Just, uh, you know, give it a little provoke. And as she does, the giant bird of prey uncloaks in front of them. And again, it looks like a much more ornate bird of prey. But maybe that was just, again, this is before I realized that that's where all the the dead bodies were going. So maybe that was just part of it. But it also, now that I know, it, it does look like an older version of what we know the bird of prey to be in the original series as well. So the captain uh, says, okay, disengage targeting. Michael, you get back to sickbay, all right? Now, signal Starfleet and let them know we have engaged the Klingons. Dun, 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 dun. The music might as well have done that. It was something very close. Dun, 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 dun. Uh, We go to commercial. Back to it. The Senju is calling the Klingon ship, but it's not getting a response. We find the Klingon commander is uh, asking, who's going to be the next torchbearer? The former torchbearer's brother steps forward, but he doubts the teachings of the commander. He says, no, this isn't the way it's going to go. Will our brothers and sisters in the fleet answer your call? The commander says, they will, because the prophecy commands it. All Klingons must come to the light of Kalos. All right, so let's get a little history of Kalos, right? Uh Something I looked up here because I thought it would be fun. So sometime in the 9th century, I don't know if that was our 9th century or the Klingon 9th century, but whatever, Kalos defeated all of his enemies, including... Molor and Fikiri, and uh, on the field of battle and founded the mighty Klingon Empire, uniting the Klingon people and giving them the laws of honor. Upon his death, Kalos promised that he would return one day to lead the empire again. After his death, it was said that Kalos awaited all Klingons in Stofarkor, the life which leads beyond our life now. His teachings and honor and tradition are formed the basis for modern Klingon philosophy and culture. As of 2,374, Kalos is still revered to as the near-divine figure for the Klingons. He's the lawgiver figure. The what? He is the lawgiver figure. He is Lycurgus. He's Romulus. He's Moses. He's Cyrus. You have all these uh, figures in ancient human history who promulgate the laws. One of the things that happens, of course, is that our, our own history, all of these cases you know, get into a period in which there was no formal writing. Writing was basically either absent or was an accounting system. And so people didn't know. How was Rome founded? How was Sparta founded? How was the Persian Empire founded? Right. And they kind of fill in the gaps by saying, all the good stuff? Our founder did that. And this is an example of uh, that kind of mythology. So some consider this to be a fable. This idea of the uh, the light of Kalos. But the, manor, the commander calls this Klingon a dishonor. So Volk steps up. He's like this white Klingon, some, some sort of like albino Klingon or something. Uh, he has no family name. But he burns himself on the flame of Kalos to prove that he is worthy of being torchbearer and proving by faith that he is worthy. So I'm wondering, is fire safe to have on a safe trip, on a spaceship? 
just curious. I mean, oxygen is kind of a, yeah, yeah, it's a big thing. I mean, it would just eat away all the oxygen. I guess they must be able, the Klingons must have some sort of cool way of, you know, creating new oxygen or something. I don't know. The, uh, you know, Star Trek has always had a fascination with the Romans. The, uh, true. The Romulans were basically a kind of, you know, space Roman. Mm Mm-hmm. There's an episode in which they actually will encounter a Roman Empire as if it had not collapsed. And so like this example of putting your hand in the fire, there's a, a story about a Roman who gets captured by the Etruscans and to demonstrate how tough he is, he puts his own hand in the fire and says uh, to the Etruscan king, all of us Romans are like this. We're all willing to burn our hands to... Uh, you know, to prove that you you don't have us, that we're going to defeat you, and he kind of freaks out the Etruscan king, who then makes a deal. <laughs> so putting your hand in the fire. Right, exactly. The Klingon gets an alert saying that the movement has happened as predicted. We don't know what that movement is yet. He gives Voke the role of torchbearer and tells him to go light the beacon. Well, this can't be good. Back on the Shinju. Uh, Saru as the Khan. He's about to make a decision when Michael uh, probably saves him from having to make it by coming back on the bridge. He has only scanned the ship only to discover uh, what I sort of predicted earlier, that the casks of the dead are forming some sort of armor on the ship, you know? It is both symbolic and possibly... uh, It is more symbolic than useful. It's not super useful, obviously. Yeah, 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 exactly. Saru, in typical fashion, asks Michael to withdraw, but uh, Michael says it's impossible so we find out that uh, Saru's people are Kelpian. He says, your world has food chains. Mine does not. Our species map is binary. You are either a predator or you are the prey. My people were hunted, bred, farmed. We are your livestock of old. We are biologically determined for one purpose and for one purpose alone, to sense the coming of death. I sense it coming now. Wow, that's uh, foreboding. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the captain's ready room, and uh, oh, so now we have hologram technology instead of just having voice. Okay, whatever, it's cool. So uh, Captain Gigio here is uh, briefing Starfleet on their current situation. Michael joins them and suggests that the Klingons are, uh, are only in it for the battle. She turns out to be right, of course, but we'll get there. So uh, the Admiral, of course, suggests that, hey, we don't know the Klingons' motivation, man. I mean, it's been a long time since we have any dealings with them. They could be totally cool now. We don't even know. Michael begs the captain, you know this to be true. You know that's what they want, right? She says, well, the diplomat in me hopes that there will be no attacks, but the soldier in me knows that nothing good will come of this. Suddenly, a giant light blinds them. The torch from the torchbearer, I wonder? On the bridge, the, fi- uh, the filters are overloaded. The signal turns to them, and all the crew is both optically and orally blinded. What is going to happen? Commercial. <laughs> so uh, I was also wondering, I guess this gets answered later, so it's kind of sad, but I threw this in at the commercial break here. Uh, I wondered if these Klingons are like some sort of splinter group. Is that what's going mm-hmm. to happen? You know, Which apparently they are. That, uh, that is, ends up how it becomes. But uh, at the time, I was questioning, like, how's this going to fit into the overall mythology of uh, what we know about Klingons? But I guess that is true. So back at it. They mute as much of the noise as they can. Michael predicts that they're uh, probably calling for backup. She then uh, mysteriously asks if she can leave the bridge. <laughs> the captain is less than excited about this, but grants it. In her quarters, she calls for Sarek. 
He says, uh, emotions still impede your logic. She's like, no, they inform my logic, she said. They, and she says it, too, as if it's like an old argument that they've mm-hmm. had over and over again, you know. She fills in Sarek on the events of the day. Sarek hi- hypothesizes that possibly there's a new leader. Because he says when culture acts opposite to its own nature, obviously there must be something going on. So Michael begs him to tell her how the Vulcans ended their diplomatic relationship with the Klingons. She rushes back into the, uh, she rushes back onto the bridge. She tells the captain to fire on the ship, but the captain dismisses the idea. Then we find out that 240 years ago there was a Vulcan ship that met a uh, that met a uh, Klingon ship. And when they tried to, uh, you know, greet them, the Klingons fired on them. So from then on, every time the Vulcans ran into any Klingons, they would fire at them. Hence the Vulcan hello. And it's the name of the episode. We got there. How exciting. But even after hearing the story, the captain dismisses it. She says the Federation does not fire first. Michael uses logic, trying to show her record as a reason that she should be believed. And again, the captain rejects the plan. And Michael says, no, you have to. Well, that's it. The captain can't take it anymore. Calls Burnham into her ready room where they face off. The captain knows what war is, and she doesn't want to see it occur here. We see it on her face. She knows what war is. She knows what loss is, what death is, destruction can bring to a federation. Burnham specs back. She's consoling herself. She says maybe she's, you know, still injured and tired. And then Vulcan the hand pitches the captain. What? What just happened here? That was out of nowhere. A little bit of mutiny. Right? Mutiny. She walks back onto the bridge and tells Tactical to target the neck of the cruiser. Saru questions her orders. Burnham tells them a lie and just tells them to fire. But then in walks the captain and belays the order. Holds a phaser on Burnham. Saru, very funnily... Backs away slowly from the situation. Okay, I'm out of here. But before this is resolved, more Klingon ships swarm into view. A dozen or so. And we go to commercial. Wait, it's not just a commercial. It's the end of the episode. What's happened? What an ending. (laughs) Crazy. On a cliffhanger as well. Here's what I wrote. Uh, This has certainly taken an interesting turn of events. This is like no Star Trek I've ever seen before. And I love it. What an ending. So I think what we have here is kind of a, a reiteration or an inverse of Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. We have this attempt to make peace. We have this dispute between the more aggressive officer, in that case Kirk, here it's Burnham. Um, in that case, the more peace-focused officer, in that case Spock. Here it's, uh, so, you know, there are some parts that are familiar, some parts get universed. And, you know, there's, uh, you know, this, this problem of peace with the Klingons. Mm-hmm. It's what this is about. And this will play over into the next episode as well, in which we will we'll even have a crossover to the other ship, um, you know, just so we didn't undiscovered country. And, uh, you know, there was a lot of things I felt like, oh, it's, you know, I, I, I feel some undiscovered country going on. Yeah, here. yeah, yeah. But of course, it, yep. it feels new and original, and it feels like Star Trek, so it's all good. A couple of little bits of trivia here real quick before we wrap up this episode. Uh, Sarek explains that the, that disastrous first contact between the Vulcans and the Klingons occurred uh, in the Hatora system. Well, this is the same system that is mentioned in All Good Things at the end, where in the alternate timeline, Worf has become governor of that colony. 
So uh, that's funny. So uh, multiple characters also have stated that Starfleet has had barely any uh, contact, of course, with the Klingons for almost a full century. And uh, so this also lines up with Star Trek Enterprise. So that was funny, which is almost exactly 100 years before Star Trek Discovery. Apparently, the events of Enterprise Affliction, the Klingons withdraw for an extended period of time of isolation. Dun, dun, dun. All of that, of course, awesome information coming from uh, Memory Alpha, the wiki, the Star Trek wiki. So that was pretty cool. Anyway, so that's it. Uh, any final thoughts for you on uh, that episode? I like it. It's good. I like it. I love it, too. I think it feels, uh, it moves along, it clips ahead. And it's really awesome. I think it's great. I'm really excited for what uh, the future of the show is going to be if this is yep. uh, episode one. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, that wraps it up for us this week, folks. Thanks a lot. As always, you can find us on thebrotherstrekabout.com. We are on Stitcher. We are on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. So wherever you found us, you can find some more of us. So that's it. That wraps up episode one. As always, my name is Matt. And Ken, say goodbye, Ken. Live long and prosper. Live long and prosper. There we go. And we'll see you all next week. (laughs) Thank you.